You're listening to an ACA podcast. So it's my pleasure to introduce um, Irina, who has joined us from Michigan, Dipanjana from New York, and me too from New Delhi. Irena is professor at the School of Art and Design and Digital Studies Institute of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her publications include Hospitality of the Matrix, Philosophy, Biomedicine and Culture, published by Columbia University Press in 2012, and more recently, Arrested Welcome, Hospitality in Contemporary Art, University of Minnesota Press in 2020. And Irina is currently in the final stages of editing a forthcoming monograph on Mitu Sen's work, which will appear later this year. Dipanjana Klein is based in New York and regularly back and forth to New Delhi in her role as Director of Acquisitions and Development at the Kiran Nadar Museum of Art in New York, in New Delhi. In this role, Dipanjana is currently involved in the development of a major new museum building with the renowned architect David Ajay. We're delighted to be collaborating with KNMA Museum as presenting partner in ACA's exhibition and very much appreciate KNMA's support of key loans to the exhibition and support towards the development of the new installation MOU Museum of Unbelongings. Dipanjana is a long-standing friend and colleagues of MeToo. She's known MeToo for three decades and therefore from her earliest days as an artist. And of course, it is a great honour to welcome MeToo Sen. Me Too grew up in West Bengal and lives and works in New Delhi. She studied at the Visva Bharati University in Santa Nikitan, where she gained her BFA and MFA in painting between 1990 and 97. And subsequently, she participated in the postgraduate program at the Glasgow School of Art in, 1991, in, in um, 2001. As one of India's most renowned contemporary artists, Mitu Sen has exhibited and performed in major international forums, including currently at the Sharjah Biennale, and with recent projects at Sonsbeek in Arnhem in the Netherlands in 2021. APT, many, many might have seen her work at APT um, at the Queensland Art Gallery in 2018, and other projects at um, Kamul Prescott Road in 2018, Kiran Museum of Art in New Delhi 2017, Guggenheim Museum, New York 2016, Tate Modern in 2013, among many others. So our exhibition, Mother Tongue, surveys the past two decades of Mitu Sen's compelling art practice, including a series of major new works and installations. The installation itself is composed as an illuminated mind map, with Gallery One featuring a constellation of image and word associations which explore Mitu's engagement with language, media, performance, and identity. In many of these works, we see Me Too working as a performer, tangling with the politics of language, disciplining of bodies, conventions of society, and the polite impositions of the art and academic worlds. Me Too is known for her provocative, alluring, and playful examination of these hierarchies, and the exhibition charts the ways in which language and the poetics of abstraction are channeled by Me Too into forms as diverse as drawing, sculpture, media, and performance. Me Too's practice is situated around five conceptual categories that she identifies as lingual anarchy, unmonolith identity, untaboo sexuality, counter-capitalism, and radical hospitality, which also inform the shape of the exhibition. Moving between the roles of intuitive poet, and erudite critical scholar, Mitu's practice occupies both intellectual and emotional registers, at once sensual, intimate, and libidinous, whilst equally conceptual, critical, and, and subversive. 
The installation is constructed as a series of contact zones, exploring the relations between I and we, me and you, us and them, inviting and testing relationships between guests and hosts, participants and performers, the artist and the institution of the museum, art history and the art market, and ultimately the artist and her audiences, with her works always seeking to complicate and to question notions of identity which circulate around her as a woman artist located in the global south, navigating feminist and post-colonial discourses framed within the art market. So me too, welcome, and thank you for your breathtaking and exhilarating exhibition. Perhaps to start in the first instance, I wonder if you might like to reflect upon the title of the exhibition, Mother Tongue. Thank you, Max. Thank you, everyone, for coming to the evening. And, um, well, mother tongue. So, I mean, we definitely have a mother tongue for each of us. And I don't know. Um, technically, as a Bengali, my mother tongue is Bengali. So, and my mother is a poet. So, when I was growing up, I, I often thought, like, is it the Bengali as a language or poetry? Because, like, in, 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 in my upbringing, initial few years, I, I, I mean, I was three and four years old, um, and I started writing poetry with my mom, and I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to be a poet like her. I wanted to express myself as a poet. I thought poetry is the only way of... Um, exploring life in true sense without knowing what poetry is or what language is. But by, at that time, I only have Bengali. So I started writing in Bengali. And I think until I was in my 20s or early 20s, I kept writing in Bengali, mostly poetries, and also published a couple of books. And felt very confident about the language and the mother tongue. I still did not know what was coming and waiting for me next. And then I moved to Delhi, where the language was not neither Hindi or English. We have 300 languages around the whole country. And it's a country with, uh, it's a post-colonial situation. You can see that that country has never had a, um, national language per se, like we, we use Hindi, but most of the South India doesn't have Hindi and they refuse to speak in Hindi. So there is a hardcore lingual politics around the country and the hegemony and hierarchy of this lingual politics around, around our social, um, you know, platform become quite hardcore for me. Um, the mother tongue, again, I'm coming back to the title because uh, I think I, I did not try to use it as a nostalgia or sentimental value. Um, of course, mother tongue is a very emotional and sentimental word, uh, but I rather tried to explore it through the lingual anarchy position and how I can explore it more as a primordial um, embodied, you know, um, um, kind of space within our body and mind and soul. So, and it, of course, it is also a provocation. Um, it provokes 
all of us like and make us curious and um, yeah I, I don't know like what more I think I'm a little lost so for me mother tongue is poetry and it will always be poetry which I don't want to explain or translate and I don't consider that it can ever be but it will be so it's a it's a presence it's an existence but it is not something that I can explain yeah. And, and Mitu, the title, the, the, the M in the title is small, and so it has a capital O and also re, um, references other tongue. Yeah. So and it, you've spoken about having a vexed relationship with the other tongue of the English language and the Anglophone art world. Yeah. And you note that these are frustrations that are shared by countless colonised people. Um, and so I wonder if you could reflect on your experiences in that regard and even perhaps your experience at art school in India and then later in Glasgow? Uh, so when I moved to Delhi, I, um, I had to confront that, that kind of um, the huge, uh, that anglophonic art world and uh, where the entrance was almost had an invisible, you know, kind of gate pass that you have to be educated in certain um, language or you know it's all it was almost like a code and if you are not codified in that language it was not that welcoming um, and it was it was very subtle you know you had you just sense it because in today's time like our in our, in our you know like the yeah we cannot just say that oh you cannot you are you <laughs> you cannot enter in our territory but it always is imposed that you are supposed to know or you are supposed to articulate yourself in certain kind of um, customs or, you know, kind of language. So this whole imposition of a, um, of a foreign language, which was not our own, and it was more like uh, the, the, this lingual domination of this colonized uh, you know, like a culture, a country like India or Africa or in many countries in the world that we often feel discomforted because we cannot express ourselves. Even today you can see that, you know, I wish that I had more vocabularies and words and so that I can put the exact emotion, the word I want to express, but I cannot and that discomfort put me in certain kind of crisis and I started searching for what language means and what is actually communication. Is it, is it a com com language just we learn or we are educated with or it is something beyond? And from that search, I think I started writing or I started sourcing myself in some kind of earning or undoing. And earning is not to negate the language. So I'm never, I mean, I know like, you know, a lot of time it seems like I'm against English or against other foreign language, but it's not. It's all about that cultural domination or the politics of um, not knowing a certain things or, you know, like that, that becomes a gate pass for you, for you. It doesn't really matter that the other areas you are comfortable with or not. So, that, that pressure always I had in my body and um, I just did not know how to empower myself. And then suddenly I think that non-language became a 
resistance in my skin and I started quite fluently in my non-language. And then I realized that my non-language is not understood by others and they are going through the similar kind of um, suffocation or, um, you know, like sufferings that when you cannot grab or grip like a, the, the other's language and still want to. And like, so that moment of not understanding others and either you reject or ignore or you try to like, you know, kind of, you, you, there is a disparation of understanding the language and that is not actually any language, but the human emotions and vulnerability and that only connects us. So I rather felt like if I, if I really try to engage myself more with that kind of human crisis and the conditions and the vulnerability and emotions um, instinctually, I rather will be more, you know, communicative. And that's how it's not that I wanted that visual art as, a, as an alternative of my language. But I really, and, and I still don't have a mother tongue. I still don't have a language where I feel comfortable. I'm still in search of that, that bridge or something that I can cope up with. Um, I don't know if ever I can be comfortable or will find something, but I call it as poetry, which is not always and not by everyone uh, understood but felt. So, yeah, this much I can say. I might invite um, Deepanjana to take up the next question and reflection. It might be tough to go after me too, <laughs> after she spoke so beautifully about being uncomfortable. Um, so, as uh, Max said, I've known me too uh, for over 30 years, so how do you speak about her? Uh, in a few minutes, so I wrote something for her. So Me Too is one of the greatest creative warrior queens of our time. She allures you into her work in the most playful manner and then hits you with the most poignant, relevant, and often the most uncomfortable questions ranging from self-identity, pretense, social and political impositions, and through her deeply personal visual language, she gently leads you into the unworld as she sees it, which I'm sure you've seen inside. Um, she finds a way to meander through your innermost psyche for the rest of your life, and I'm a witness to that. Unbeknownst to you, Mitu, in her unbelonging and in her unworldly ways, becomes part of your fabric, and you begin to submerge and allow your mind to expand and see the chaos of the unworld. That's the magic of Me Too. So one of the questions I would ask, like to ask you is, you're a poet, as you said, you're a writer, you are an activist, you're an artist, you're a performer. All of this put together, I can't help myself and bring to mind two of the greatest artists of our times, Adrian Piper and Laurie Anderson. So I would love to know if these are artists who have influenced your minds 
and who are the greatest minds of our times that have had the most impact in your work and yourself? Um, great artists. Of course, Adrian Piper is one of my heroes, and especially my last last solo show, Unmute You, in 2018. I've been deeply um, inspired by her um, artist contract making and declaration, and um, and actually very greedily, I and she's based in New York, and there was a show in MoMA, and I asked her that if I can get a book. So every year she comes and she gets me the best books of from New York. So she got me Adrian Piper. Um, so yes, of course. Uh, but my other Sophie Cal, who deeply moved me like for the last 20 years. Um, well, do I have to write, talk about only artist as artist? Because if somebody really moved my life after my mom, it's Fernando Pessoa. He's a philosopher. He was a philosopher and poet. But he's, he's extremely critical philosophy of identity and politics and heteronymous um, completely like shaken my own little world of where I was looking for identity um, and the multiple identity or denial of identity or accepting identity or expected identity. Like, you know, I was, it was like too much for me. And especially last couple of years, if we see that in inclusion and of politics of identity. And so um, I really still don't understand what identity is and what identity we should really um, follow or we um, admit ourselves because it's a, it's a, it's identity is a flux because it's constantly uh, changing and shaping, and it's like exactly like how feminism is. It's a constant becoming. So that's why I never can uh, put myself in one kind of identity. And all these uh, philosophers and you know uh, writers and artists and poets and filmmakers, um, even um, at home, like our help who cooks for us, they have a different kind of, you know, um, understanding about identity because it's so layered and complex. And I learn every day from each of them. And especially uh, I studied in Vishwabharat in Shantaniketan, founded by philosopher Rabindranath Tagore, whose idea of universal man or universalism is also another, um, you know, aspect in my life that enriched me understanding um, identity as a as a fluid um, what do you call yeah it's a fluid so so yes to answer your question of course Adrian Piper and many more I am bad with names but Adrian Piper Sophie Cal and uh, you know like this kind of great artist like. Uh, they always, they're always like in my skin. <laughs> I wish I was like them or could be something hito style, you know, like, so, um, yeah, but I'm very easily identified and compared and uh, often referred with Louis Bourgeois, Kiki Smith, I know, whom I also greatly admire. But for, in my practice, I always try to 
I'm a comp I have a complex psyche, so I cannot stop my thinking of <laughs> what I'm doing. So if I work for one year, so almost nine to ten months, I just ponder on writing, erasing, reading, and again doing editing. So that mind chat is actually my studio. I my in my studio I have these big boards. People often come and get very frustrated seeing there is no art. But it's only like a complex chart of random words, sometimes some icons or motifs, but which does not carry any singular meaning. But it somehow connects. So I don't connect, even try to connect the dots. So without connecting the dots, they all float and they are in a, in my, in my cosmos, you know, like, and they start floating and sometimes I grab one of them and then it's like this is what I want but then next morning I get up I say like no that is somehow no. like it go on from my hand side so it's it's really very difficult I don't know how artists uh, so wonderfully explain their practice but I don't I cannot articulate myself so either I'll speak like this with random words and and <laughs> random thoughts and then I'll just float sometimes in my own dream and then I'll see what I was talking about <laughs> what I mean still I don't I forgot I yet remember Adrian Piper so I'll stop here <laughs> should I go with another question then since you answered it so beautifully <laughs> you talked about uh, having trouble with the mother tongue and the other tongue so let's get a little deeper um, so your non-binary approach to the art world, where, whether, where you belong and at the same time unbelong. So in that belonging and unbelongingness as an artist, what are your deepest fears and your darkest secrets? Would you have read? <laughs> Honestly, my deepest fear, fear is fascism. And my darkest secret that I'm not supposed to tell. <laughs> I guess I hand it over to you. Hey, Ren, we'd like to continue the reflection of our question. Thank you. I would um, stand by comparing uh, about fascism as the uh, deepest fear. I think it's on many of our minds um, nowadays. And I actually did also have a question about fear, but I think it's, <clears throat> it's indicative of how, um, how, much, um, how much permission, Mito, you give us to um, go into this, uh, area or into this uh, way of being uncomfortable and I tend to think that so much of your work is finding form that would not rush beyond to any kind of um, you know feeling good <laughs> about the uncomfortable uh, that's where for me at least the humor is so important um, and very often self-deprecating or self-directed uh, humor in your works just behind here, right, about successful artists, um, 
the works with with tears, the works which border, uh, referencing what Max you started with, with between pain um, and violence, and how do we hold each other in this way? Um, I would like to also, before I ask my question, um, men to mention how amazing it is that there are more works, uh, like noticing and going to see works that are uh, changing, suddenly changing a register of um, approaching these difficult, uncomfortable issues. Because often those who, whose voice has been repressed, when it comes out, it often comes out as a scream, right? It, it comes out often and, um, as, through, uh, as uh, different variations of anger, and very righteous anger, and um, reading a lot of Audre Lorde, for example, on anger throughout the pandemic, um, I was often feeling, thinking how do, and speaking um, to very uh, smart people who make work around, around that, um, around this idea of concept of anger, how both we find form for it, how we share form with it, but also how do we hold, how do we become vessels of someone else's anger? And I think uh, Mitu's work, uh, our endless Zoom calls, because I also tend to think and work like her uh, in terms of my mind. Um, endlessly, we try to both, I think, support each other around those issues, but also think, uh, I'm always amazed at the form that she would come up with to both um, demand to become of someone else to be a vessel and at the same time to provide that that um, a kind of a form of holding uh, of those discomforts and difficult um, difficult affect that often comes out uh, from the repressed, uh, from the forgotten, from the um, destroyed. Um, so my question, however, would be really, um, since questions which I had, uh, some of the other topical questions already been asked, I would ask you a question about your process um, a bit more. Because um, we often talk about big topics, but I realized that I rarely asked you about, like, how do you make work? <laughs> right? When you go to the studio in the morning, apart from reading and Right, that you do a lot of reading, you do a lot of reflection, um, writing. Uh, when it comes to actual making, can you please just give an example? Um, for example, of the mother, uh, the mother. I spell you wrong. Can you please talk a little bit more how you made that work? What comes into that iteration process that it's it involves for you, and maybe connected to that, the question of uh, medium as well. Will you work in so many media? Right? How does that come to you? Um. Thank you. Um, for a long time, I mean, I, of course, I am trained as a painter. Um, I did my both bachelor's and master's and postgrad like in painting. But since the final year of my master's, um, I started questioning myself that 
what am I painting? Am I painting and what is it? Because when I'm making a painting and I started using instead of brush, I started using my hands and fingers. So if the hand and fingers are becoming a part of that medium. So I was very confused because when people write like the title or the, the detail of an artwork, like how, how clinically and objectively they just said like title, medium, um, size and year like this. Um, I remember in my master degree final year, and that time actually I was writing a lot of poetry, and <laughs> I was more comfortable of writing that than, you know, um, attending classes and making paintings. So each of my paintings uh, were accompanied with um, a piece of my diary. It was not really freshly written or something, just I, you know, like kind of took out a page and I thought that this can be, so of course there is a, um, like other, other students are all artwork, we know that there is a title, but my title was so long and lengthy that people will definitely, as a title, if they read it, they will get lost and they will not, and there is no connection. Um, I don't remember if I was asked about that in the, by my juries, but I myself did not understand. I just knew that I had to do that. I had to make both of them. Then only I'll feel it. It is complete. But later, you know, like how like this text or language and everything, like in the whole identity or the definition of an of an artwork, became a critic. I, I started, you know, like kind of questioning that what exactly I should caption them. So in last many years, I started making my own captions where I, um, where I just try to write the mediums. There definitely there may be supposed like ink and watercolor on charcoal on handmade paper, but also the hidden mediums that vulnerability, silence or violence or nightmares that we forget to add, I started adding them. They might sound very romantic or poetic, that's how most of the art writers write, but uh, I really mean it, and they are not really as poetic or romantic as they seem. Um, one incident I remember that Dipanjana that time was heading um, Christie's, and there was a auction, you know, like, and I had given a work, which was a skull with a bladed tooth. And of course, it was a drawing on handmade paper with ink and charcoal, but there was also written toothache and pain. And so from her office contacted me and started to say that, how can we say these things? What is this is like, this is, this cannot be a medium. But uh, then I said, don't write, but then don't include it in the catalog. I don't want to give my, I'm a little stubborn sometimes. <laughs> Max knows now very much. <laughs> and um, I'm so happy that, uh, that Christie's the auction catalog finally uh, published that with this toothache. So I want everyone should admit and acknowledge those erased and hidden voids that we see but don't see and recognize those areas and try to, because until and unless we have said something on our face, we don't, we don't like see them because we are blunt. 
we are blind. We don't see what we are supposed to see. We don't recognize what we are, you know, like. So, because everything is, as a myth, constructed so mythically that to unmeet those constructs, those monoliths, we need a lot of, a lot of, um, I would, not, I would not say courage because I think both of you asked me about fear and if I'm scared of something. And so for me, like, fear is never a medium. I don't really fear anything unless somebody said that you are fearless. And then I ask myself a question why I'm fearless. Then whether it's about sexuality or unlanguage or, you know, like, say something on capitalism and try to manipulate something with market and my own price of my artworks. I don't really see, because for me it is very normal and organic, and I just say it. I, what I don't do is I don't stop myself from that moment when this thing comes. So also in my practice, coming back to like how I do that practice, when I, I just don't go every day in my studio and go and start working. There are literally 80% days in my studio are unproductive. And they are unproductive in relation to when I first made the, my first contract where I declare all my artwork as byproduct. So productivity also has a a new meaning in my practice. What is productive? Is it in relation to the market? Is it in relation to the commodification of certain tangible form of you know um, things? So medium for me for a long time was life. And then it become more like flavor. So my medium is flavor, like playing with labor. And of course, I indulge vulnerability, instincts, sensuality, emotions, because I'm a collector of emotions. So I, I try to add all of these areas, and that becomes my medium, and that becomes very easy for me to, to um, express that moment of... So I don't have mediums in my studio also I have couple of rooms so I'm making drawings and then I go to my next room I start doing some little editing then I go to another room sometimes I just record my non like you know I'm some sounds I come back I make some brunch I don't know like you know and most of the days I just don't do anything looking at the big windows I'm in eighth floor and try to completely void my brain. I mean, often people think that this is a form of meditation, but it's not that. It is the moment when I go back ho home at night and until the next morning breakfast, when I watch the news in the television, that every day that takes my, my, all my sanity out. So I come back to my studio every day and I have to to make myself you know like so and I have to vomit so what I make is the vomiting of the reality I experience in these little moments when I am attached with this world and the reality 
I live in a reality, of course, and it's a happy, very nice, beautiful life. I'm not denying that, that we all experience and then we all try to, all try to find an alternative space because we are never comfortable about what is happening with life in reality or also in many ways, personally, professionally, publicly, everywhere, socially, politically. So again, I cannot explain, but something disturbs me deeply and I just try to sleep over and the next morning I wait when I can go to my studio, which is uh, like escape. And I know often my friends and like a lot of people know that even Shirin, she knows that when she calls me from Bombay and she immediately can recognize you are in your studio because my voice changes and in my studio I dance, I scream, I sing because there is nobody. I don't have any assistant, I don't have anybody in my studio. So my studio is my own space. I just, and my husband Shamita, she's also an artist, he's here. So his studio is in the next building and we come and then we go to like our studios and then again at night we come back home to have dinner and then this television. I know like people can say like you can stop watching news and you know, I only watch news and cricket. So, so <laughs> when this news comes, it never comforts me. So I come back to poetry and my studio. So this is how my practice is and I... I don't have a, don't have a, anything to say like how my everyday is. My everyday is like that. So it's an escape from the world and cultivating that unworld every day, like bit by bit. And it's, it's a comforting space and I'm blessed that I have that space. Mitri, perhaps it's to, you've spoken about intuition and the emotions and I guess Mother Tongue also speaks about the relationship, of course, between the primordial relationship between the, the language and the body. And so your work often engages with poetics of the body and the senses and the emotions um, alongside, but sometimes in place of intellectual abstractions, so more effective non-linguistic modes of communication. And a new work, for example, is a work called For Dead, where the, where the E is in brackets, and we see a tear pooling in the cradle of an eye. And I'm wondering if you could speak about your interest in these more effective forms of communication and, and what it is about tears. I mean, you, you've spoken about tears as actually a motif that interests you. Um, so that walk, that one tear drop is like stuck here. And then one is almost, so there is a tension between, I don't know, so, um, but I don't want to, I mean, of course, as a woman artist, showing a big eye with tears immediately falls into some kind of sentimentalism, feminist history, and yeah. So, I think I at least try to explore the tears as a language beyond this kind of um, articulation, rather, um, of course, it is very personal, um, and uh, I don't feel ashamed to 
um, explain or talk about the personal thing because it is embodied personal emotions and it is very much a reality and I embrace that kind of personal sentiments and emotions as a woman, as a human and I want and I wish everybody should do that instead of instead of pretense. So I lost my dad in 2021, 21st November 2021. And um, of course, like all of us, we were very close to our parents. And my dad was, is a hero. Um, But for some strange reason, I'm living my everyday life since that day, but I could not cry until now. And my sister, my family, they tried to explain, no, it's another form of grief. Uh, it will come out. Don't worry. It's like, and I said, I'm not worried. But I just wonder, that man was, was so a part of my everything. How I'm not crying? Am I like an inhuman? Like, I really started feeling myself like most insensitive inhuman being in this world. And then one day I was so desperate. I thought, I'll cry. But I still couldn't cry. It was funny. How can I cry? Because tears looks like water, as transparent as like anything. And especially if in black and white, it looks like so I just lie down on the balcony of my studio next to the window. I put I, on the you know, dropper, I put some water, and I tried to fill myself. And, and looked at it. It was looking so strong, powerful. And um, so it was a fake tears. It was not fake tears. It was some waters. It was a motif. It was an icon of something that cannot be translated. It cannot also be a poetry. It cannot be anything. But it is, it is, it exists. It is an existence. And also I tried to relate, you know, like the Rolabarth, the lover's discourse, who will write the history of tears. Nobody can write, I think. So that main wall where I tried to compose a couple of my videos and some light lines is for myself an abstract abstraction of language. So where the whole show was conceived as a form of language and non-language, undoing language, deconstructing language, critiquing and questioning the politics of language for last 20 years this both these walls left and right they are they appeared in a different kind form of uh, performance or you know work but that wall i think it is not a metaphor of language it is not about another language but it is beyond a language i don't really try to create a visual language or a, I, it is something that 
I cannot explain and I have to admit that. But it is something I also feel like me, maybe some of you also can relate, if not individually, but as a whole. So the pigeon, which hate is never been seen, and that is also from my studio one rainy afternoon. I don't know why this pigeon was not going under a shelter or shade, but just constantly like, a, you know, like sitting on the, but hiding his or her head. And for more than eight to 10 minutes, I could not see the head. So I was sitting on my table. I just put my phone and I shoot, you know, I was shooting that pigeon. The whole headless form. If you, if you watch it closely, you'll see that it has that movement. It has that, you know, suddenly, you know, like it's shaking and these feathers, are, but doesn't have a head. And that, that is something that language, again, I could not understood. I could not explain to myself. So, and that, then the clock. It's a moon or it's a clock. It's that it represents some kind of untimeliness. And then the, that, that light line, which says that deadline extended. So, I don't know how or if at all they are connected, but the whole, like last couple of years, what we went through the whole humankind past that, you know, the pandemic time, experiencing death, war, personal losses, that, that disorder, the global disorder in our, you know, um, humankind that made us kind of numb. And time always also makes a big question to me that because when I was born and when I started um, learning how to read a clock, I don't definitely remember, none of us remember, but we don't ever know when it started. So it never starts and never ends. So that really surprises me that we are like how, like, how manipulated we are that and bond we are with a little machine or the, the idea of time that we are just blindly following. We never really can untime or flatten that. So I just tried technically or this technology, uh, create some kind of texture and make it fluid or sometimes. So that play of with technology or the medium was to capture that kind of, that kind of state of mind or a desire to deny time. I know like when we are born, we are, we are already limited with some kind of some idea of time. And this time, I again don't understand as another language and all these constructs, whether it's a time or a language or gender or whatever, or another country or border, those things really comes to me as a challenge to deny and not to understand and 
So I once I told one of my friend in Pakistan, I really wanted to go to Lahore and we don't get a visa because of the political. I said, what if I just start walking? Who will stop me? Can really anybody stop us if we really want to start walking? Yes, they can. During pandemic, I could not see my parents for more than one and a half year. One day I woke up and I told my husband, I'm going home. And he said, it's pandemic, everything is locked down. Where are you going? We cannot even go to the studio. I said, I, I'm going to start walking. And it is like around 1600 kilometers from New Delhi to Calcutta. And well, technically I could not walk, but I was walking. So I walk all through nights and days and months and, and I read somewhere. Well, that was very, it was very moving. Um, you, you mentioned, perhaps following from that, you mentioned a moment ago about the history of tears. And um, you know, I think in, and we, we were speaking earlier today about beauty and violence and a sort of double bind in your work. And you're thinking about a drawing such as Until You 206, for example, which represents um, episodes of violence in sort of post-independence India since 1947. Um, or a work such as Undo's and Undon'ts, which includes a series of invisible drawings of taboo subjects which people must look at themselves, take responsibility for looking at through their own flashlight. And I just wanted to perhaps ask if you could elaborate on the ways in which you seek to represent these violent or challenging histories, but at the same time you withhold the spectacle of violence. So the works are actually very beautiful or very intimate, and they draw you to those works. So that perhaps if you could reflect upon how how, how your work does straddle these, these positions between both beauty and violence. It's nice, like beauty and violence. I didn't think I was always asked like beauty and grotesque. But I don't think that grotesque, violence is grotesque. Violence is beautiful. Violence is beautiful in many ways because violence taught me how to, how to, express myself in an invisible, you know, like, way. Especially that work until you do 206. 206, like, the total bones in a human form. So that work is actually about um, the communal violence. It's a map of communal violence has happened in India since 1947, since our independence. So almost 75 years. And when I was, like, last few years I've been researching on, you know, like researching on the sense, like in my own way, like trying to understand like what make this generic violence in human, human, you know, like uh, civilization, you know, like violence is like, I think is older than a language <laughs> or violence is like older than like, I don't know, it's, it's, so it is again something that I, I, I thought of capturing it in a different way so that there will be violence but can be invisible. And invi invisible violences are actually more, yeah. So that particular work I did um, during the pandemic when I was also stuck in the, at home and which was really claustrophobic because I just want to go to the studio as I said, but my studio actually 
just it's a between uh, two states. So when the border was closed, so I could not technically the I could not go to the studio. And all I had is like some papers and a compass, like from my school. And I started, um, and I was reading about. I was mostly reading that those days, and um, this this work started the idea of that me as a bone collector from all those xenophobic communal violence you know sites, but at the same time that second uh, second uh, phase of pandemic like uh, happening, and India was extremely affected and mainly New Delhi every day. We hear that we have lost someone, known or unknown. People are not even getting a graveyard or a burning heart to do their last things like rituals. People are burning the bodies on the highways. Um, it was quite spectacular and beautiful to see that different form of use of known things like highways where bodies are burned. I don't know how to explain that violence or that that emotional, you know, like that our all of our moral, you know, emotional codes were like shut, like numb. We really did not um, respond to any kind of uh, human way, like you know. Um, so now I see, and I see like it was a the 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 moment of helplessness where. We almost resigned to um, surrender ourselves. But then the only tool I had was that little, um, do you call it compass? Like you can pierce, it's like, yeah. yeah. So I started piercing and making drawings of, as a bone collector, as if from the, all those places I'm collecting. It's only 67, I have to collect more. and. Because human, I, I trust human violences because it never stops. So until you 206, it will continue. Sadly or ironically, it is true and it is our reality. And I'm just documenting and trying to make them invisible or visible. Yeah, so that was the story. I think it's also interesting the way that you know the idea of the tattoo is also something which repeats in your work um, from the early work, the ephemeral affair, which is the puncturing of the skin and also the puncturing of the paper and the drawing is also very interesting the way that moves through your work. Yeah, the source of pain is always invisible. Either you guess it or from some familiar process or sound like that ephemeral affair that buzzing sound of being tattooed because that I filmed in 2006 long ago I was in Brazil and I was working on silencing voices and I just did not know how to capture that you know how to make that possible like as a you know as a visual form and then I found that it is quite easy that if I hurt myself I'll you know I'll have some kind of expression and I can film and still I did not know what kind of, you know, how I can hurt myself and still be like, so that tattooing was one of the beautiful way of 
hurting yourself. It is ephemeral, but it is also per permanent. So it again, it's as a like you know, um, it's, it, it the name of the work is ephemeral affair. So that it's momentary, but it stays forever. The tri the trace remains. Yes, yeah. and only people who knows familiar with that language of that sound they identify rest or not and that ambiguity i always like because like me i am i don't understand everything we all have that kind of moment of not knowing everything and not to be enough smart and still accept like what is happening <laughs> because it is in your skin and skin never lies so yeah, it's like that. Time has run too fast this evening, as you mentioned before. Um, I'm sure there are also time for questions on the floor. I'm sure people may have questions, but before we do, are there any final questions or reflections, Dipanjana or Irina, that you'd like to? Um, otherwise, we would be very welcome to, we have Shireen here who has a question. And yeah, Elise will also um, pass around a microphone to you, so Sorry. please put your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to, um, you know, you've covered the, such a beautiful um, question answers with each of you. And just one that since the audience is here and um, such an important work, the Museum of Unbelonging, and you started with unbelonging in a way, you know, not the sort of... Un, uh, uh, silent closed doors that weren't really closed but weren't really open and uh, I think in some ways I think of, when I heard that I think of unbelonging as a work that began there and it's Museum of Unbelonging, MOU. So could you talk a little more about MOU? So <clears throat> MOU, Mo, Mo is my sister's name who is only one and a half years younger than me and my first doll was shared with her. And until now we share many things, many dolls, many things. So we had a pair of dolls, Jack and Jill. And Jack is still with me. Jack was my sister's and Jill was mine. But uh, something happened, we lost Jill because my father had a transferal job. So since childhood, like since I was born, we, every two years, you know, we used to go and we used to change places, cities, you know, like so. And we used to lose a lot of things, but also add many things. So that was like our, you know, that life. So once when we realized that Jill was lost, we only had Jack, that both sisters to share. And there was no issue because we share everything. But when I was leaving for Delhi, my sister gave me that Jack because she had her own Jack by then, who is also mine. So, so that my, so because I'm telling you because we were like three or four years old when we had Jack and Jill. And I always collect, like I collect words and emotions. Also I collect objects and things, but mostly the, them who are not so valuable and unimportant people, like it, it is just like I immediately find a connection of those unbelongings, like a lost earrings or a broken glass, or you know, like 
So I always had this little box and I used to collect things and I carry them. I carry them with me all over. <laughs> Thankfully, I never lost that box. It's still there, like a Pandora's box. And then, um, like when me and Shamiti started our life in Delhi 20 years, more than 20 years ago, I still had like little part that our working place and, you know, cooking and sleeping, whatever, but a little sale or something where I can keep my stuffs, you know, like because I cannot. And also, whenever I carry, like travel, I carry some of them. Because otherwise, I immediately have to in a hotel room or in a, like, residence, wherever, I immediately have to first comfort myself with my familiar things. And they are all my children. They have personal names. They have, they are not just collected. I, I just randomly buy or make things. So I develop a personal collection and personal narratives. And then I try to see how valuable they are. Because the, the, the world of that market, what we call market, you know, where this whole idea of commodification is um, related with values. So that values, that market, you know, like the values is mostly that the commercial values and the financial, you know, economical values. And they're all created. So we can also change those currency and create a different kind of value. So this play of value creation and those values and value consumption became a part of my process, developing this um, MOU, Museum of Unbelongings. I mean, of course, it refers the politics of, um, you know, like the museum collections or the what is to be museumized and not, and many different things. But I rather like to um, always engage myself with these very small little personal sentiments and adding those narratives and glorifying them and admitting them and explaining them. So for me, it, it has all kind of meanings, maybe not for you, we all have a small MOU in our life where we know that a grandmother's a little handbag is like my grandmother's handbag and maybe a little embroidery handkerchief does not carry any meaning to anybody in this world. We do that garage sale, we just take. So I often go and wonder, like every time here also I went to the flea market because these pre-loved things that, you know, like kind of the, where human emotions were already uh, involved, the whole history, when somebody dies, that whole history dies. And I just think and one object holds that kind of unsaid histories and so much. And... That, that, that is the reason all these objects and all these unbelongings become so valuable and so important for me and for all of us that I have to give them that, that uh, status of or the museum vitrine. So, so that was the very little, like, you know, personal collection, connection that I started, uh, explaining, uh, sorry, exploring the, the, unbelongings 
and of course referring constantly ourselves with how unbelong we are with the world and how constantly we become an unbelongings <laughs> to each others in our home family relationships countries everywhere so each object becomes one of i and all the collective eyes are like a gather of we and that is like what that it's 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 that collective eyes are there any other final questions before we conclude Mitchu, could i just ask a question look how your work is so beautiful i i um i can see why people compare your work to louise bourgeois her anger came from the tyranny of her father looking at the kind of works you show you have such strength and rawness in what you produce i think to be able to see beauty in violence takes amazing strength is there a particular point in your life when you realize you've got that strength to be able to make art and to be able to communicate and do what you really want to do was that an instant or event or you just became powerful for particularly those uh now you as an artist i was thinking about your practice because we're talking about your travel you're forever traveling you've got amazing family and dealer and amazing friend as well too what gives you strength and at what point in your life you realize you have that strength no i don't feel like i have the strength i'm looking for the strength though so um but i yeah it's it's uh, the best feeling is when you you when you feel embodied with some kind of power and it's not to dominate or impose to others but within yourself and uh, so that i think that only translate when i um when i make some work i don't know if i really understood what exactly um yeah like what yeah so uh, to me it's I think human condition is so frail, mm-hmm. so imperfect. If you show such imperfect world in such a beautiful way, even looking at violence is beautiful. To me, as a person, I think that with my strength to be able to write about that, not to be consumed by the anger, as you said before, you are people who are subsumed by the beauty of it. It is exploring such a profound, difficult human condition. To me, that requires strength. No, I understand, Yari. and i think like it's exactly as i know that you are a doctor so um so when when you do a surgery it's a form of violence so when you cut somebody's eyes or face but then what you do you um alongside your skill i think you put love sincerity and empathy if that is there after you know like this person your patient when so they become beautiful so it's like something like that i think um of course we 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 replicate a violence or, or we try to explain violence or darkness or pain or you know wounds but it it is it is you know like it is um handled with care <laughs> with empathy and our own vulnerability because when we mix it i know that if i cut my hand it will hurt and i think when i make something i always have that feeling i'm cutting it how it is feeling it's like that skin deep kind of 
feelings. I feel it. I cannot again explain, but I, I, when I make something, it is always, I feel it in my body. I feel it that, that each piercing is like literally piercing me. And yeah, so maybe it is beautiful to you. Um, maybe it is even beautiful to me. I mean, aesthetically, I don't know, maybe uh, because human mind is very complex. They like seeing beauty even in violence. Like, like I don't know if I enjoyed, but I still remember that burning bodies in the on television, burning bodies in the highway. Um, if it was, it was a beautiful thing or it was something that will never go from my memory. So um, beauty is self-defined, like so beauty, we, we always kind of explore beauty in different ways. So as a doctor, you know what beauty is, maybe, you know, maybe we all have our own definition of beauty if we can resist ourselves from Google and Wikipedia. Yeah, I often try to um, hack even my own Wikipedia page. I try because uh, everything is so defined and constructed that we cannot go beyond that thing. And I think that what makes it beautiful when the definition is not given, you evoke your own sense of something and it becomes beautiful. That may be um, as, a, as a viewer you find on, in an artwork. So, yeah, I don't know if, uh, how much I am conscious about making it beautiful. I just make it. And of course, I have my love and empathy about whatever I make because I treat it as my own skin, everything I make. We haven't even got to meet her's incisive humour and her contestation with artificial intelligence and its, its absurd logics. Um, however, um, I think to finish with love and care and empathy is an extraordinary position that you've brought us to in your work. Um, and through this exhibition, um, we're so excited to be presenting it over the coming months and we are really delighted to have had met her in Melbourne for the past three weeks. She's here for one more week and um, we um, yeah, couldn't be more honoured to present your work, me too. And um, um, I wanted to especially thank Deepanjana and Irina for joining us in the conversation and for your really um, insightful and profound uh, reflections on me too's work. And me too, thank you so much for your generosity this evening and your really you know wonderful insights and perspectives and very moving reflections on your practice. Thank you so much. I am like not very, <laughs> but I really and truly from my heart want to thank you, Max, because this, this last one and a half year we've been working and it's not a solo thing. It's a teamwork. I cannot really thank enough. I will, I, would, I cannot explain how he's still talking to me. <laughs> the, I work with that whole idea of guest host hospitality and tolerance, the level of human tolerance. And there are some magic moments and wonder people. So 
this collaboration was like this and uh, of course, another person is like sitting here. I don't even know how he <laughs> tolerates me, but I really want to thank you, Shamit, my husband, for last more than 20, 25 years. <laughs> and if there is someone really like my sister, Shirin, here, with whom I am working for around 20 years, but our relationship is very complex. <laughs> I cannot explain that. But without her also, I am not complete. Irina, whom I met in 2006 in a very interesting moment in New York. We both were there. She was from Singapore and I was, um, I came to represent the South Global Indian Women Artist to this big and she was a gift in my life because she was the person who introduced me with the world word called radical hospitality and helping me finding what is that in my practice. So for last 16 years, we are constantly, so it is also our growing together, like, you know, so, and this girl, I don't know if I really have 32 years. So, I mean, we are very young. We are 21 both. But we actually met in our last life. <laughs> so, yeah. And I don't know. My best friend, one of the biggest critic, and always, no matter where, tried to go and see my work. And she's the person when I actually was working for this show and she joined Kiranada Museum in Delhi. And uh, she said like, I have an idea. Why don't you collaborate? Why don't you? And I was like, the next day I was going for a surgery and I was like, I started almost crying. I said, what are you saying? And she said, yes. I said, no, 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 I'm not like, she said, yes, you are important. We are all talk. So, Today, that collaboration with KNMA is her initiative. So I don't know, like there are so many people and Melbourne is a very special place for me. And last but not least, one person I really have to, she's with me, Kate Daw. She was one of my closest person. She invited me in Melbourne. I was at BCN and she always liked my post, Instagram post and talked to me because on my Instagram post, I do unpoetries. So to deconstruct that idea of poetry because I cannot write and I take English as a strategic tool to use that I don't know enough. And so, and I create a vernacular vocabulary, so try to trust on this vernacularity of language. But she was the one who, I don't know why she loves me so much. She really does. And if somebody was really extremely happy, it was her that today I am here at Aka 
from BCS, she showed me that cook at this museum. And I said, fantastic, spectacular. It's like a dream museum because I really like that architecture without knowing what is inside. And I came and uh, Kate, it was 2015, who just introduced me with Max. He's the you know, director and curator of this museum. And we said, hello, like that. After that, we forgot until last year or a uh, little before last year when I got an email from him that he wanted to do a studio visit and when we do it in Zoom with a couple of other your colleagues and uh, one thing he asked me and that was just after I lost my dad uh, he asked me about what I'm doing and all what is my plan for next one year and do I have a dream and uh, I said no that time but I did not know there was a dream. And because of Max, the dream came true. And thank you, Max. That's fantastic.